But tonight we're going to finish Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God. And I want to begin with sort of a, a, a summation of some of the themes that we've seen woven through uh, the book of Ephesians. Ultimately, the main theme, I think, is, is God's eternal purpose. Now, the first three chapters, this follows the same, same sort of pattern or structure as a lot of Paul's letters. First three chapters are the theological deep stuff. In Ephesians, God's purpose and will in electing the saints and providing grace and salvation. We see that in the first three chapters. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us, that's this idea of election, right, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And this is one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that God is the main character, right? We are not the main character. In the, in the story of human history, Humanity is secondary. It's God's purpose, His will, right? That is the main driver of human history. Uh, Ephesians 2, 7 and 8. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. We briefly touched on that this morning, right? Talked about immersion this morning, baptism. Not as an act of salvation, that, that is that it earns your salvation, but a response to His grace, a response to His offer of grace for us. Uh, Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. We think about His purpose in this, right? He predestined, He chose, He did the work, He offered salvation. It was his purpose in Christ, even the church, his purpose in manifesting the wisdom to the, the rulers and authorities. So that's the first three chapters, the sort of theological stuff. And then the practical stuff, four, uh, Ephesians 4 through 6, how we fit in to that purpose. It's God's purpose, his story. He's the main driver of history. How does, how does he expect us to fit in? How do we fit into this, practically speaking, and that's the second half of the book, right? For one, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This calling was God's purpose, right? His purpose to call people to himself. Walk worthy of that. What does that look like? How does that, how does that play out? Ephesians 4.23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to, be, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're walking in a manner worthy of the calling. Part of that is being renewed, being made different, being uh, put on the new self, right? Five, one, and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the, the main thing that we've, we've looked at in the last two chapters, right? Ephesians 5 and 6, is the idea of submission. Of course, exemplified in Christ, right? Be imitators of him. And then he talks about husbands, and he talks about children, and he talks about servants, he talks about these different groups of people. Imitate Christ, who gave himself up, who subjected himself. We talked about in Philippians 2, I think you mentioned that in your uh, talk before communion this morning, right? That he emptied himself, gave himself up for us, and we're imitating him in that. And so Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we fit into this purpose? 
We think about our calling, how we're walking in that calling. We want to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We want to be different, be like God rather than like what we used to be. We want to imitate God. We want to imitate Christ, do what he did. And we want to understand what God's will for us is. So we come to the last chapter. There's an emphasis that there's a foe. Okay, God has a purpose. He's the main character. He's the driver of the story. But like all stories, all great stories, there's conflict. There's an enemy. There's an adversary who opposes God's purpose for salvation, who opposes God's people. And so the last chapter of Ephesians 6, probably the best known chapter in Ephesians, the best known passage, we should say, uh, the armor of God emphasizing, okay, God's got this purpose, the predestination, the calling that doesn't mean that we're just sitting back and doing nothing. That doesn't mean that we have no part in this. But there's a struggle going on that we actively participate in. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, God's not going to do it for you. Now, he did all the hard work. He offered grace. He sent Jesus. He called us. He, pre he predestined us. But you have something to do here. You need to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the devil here is the accuser, the slanderer, right? That's what the word uh, devil means. The accuser or the slanderer, what accusation does he make? Ultimately, his accusation, as it was in the days of Job, as it is in several of the minor, pro I'm trying to remember Zechariah, I think, the days of Zechariah, where the devil stands in God's throne room and basically slanders God's chosen. Job's not that great, right? He doesn't belong to you. He does the same thing to us. That's what he's doing. He's accusing and slandering God. Chris is not part of your calling. He's not part of your people. He's not part of your, your situation. He's, he's one of mine. That's the accusation. That's the slander that we haven't answered the call. Now, as we think about this text, one of the interesting literary things about Ephesians 6 is Paul's used all this language already. He's set this up all throughout the letter. As we go to some of this language here, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, he's already talked about the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 4.14, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We talked about that in our Sunday morning class this morning. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? They're the things that would make us believe the wrong thing. Things that would mislead us. We want to be transformed. We want to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Well, the devil would like to trick our minds. He'd like us to believe lies, believe deception. He'd like to trick us and carry us away from the truth of God's will. What do we need to do? We need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, the deceitful craftiness, the, the schemes of the devil is that we won't understand what the will of the Lord is. That we'll understand some wrong thing, have some wrong idea about what that is. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities. Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. We're struggling against rulers and authorities, but as we're struggling, we remember, ultimately we will win, right? Jesus is above the thing that we're struggling against. The rulers and the authorities, Jesus has already been placed far above those things. Our commander, if we're thinking about language of war, 
our commander, our general, he is more powerful than the enemy. He's more powerful than the one we're struggling against. We're struggling against the cosmic powers over the present darkness. Ephesians 2.1 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Day, man. What, are we what is he saying here? The cosmic powers over this present darkness? It seems like they're winning. It seems like those powers are in control. Why? Because people follow. People are following the prince of the power of the air. People are doing what he wants. People are, are succumbing to the, the temptation and the deceit and the schemes. And it does seem like he's winning because of the power that is at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are disobeying God. We're wrestling against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It does seem like we're in the dark. It seems like he is winning. But that's the point. We need to keep remembering may seem like he's winning this present darkness, but that darkness will be dispelled, right? We too were lost. We too were under his power. We were dead, but we came out of it. We were, we were called out of it. Others can be too. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, the contrast in Ephesians 3.10 so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. As he sees what is going on in the church, Satan has to know he's going to lose. He has to know that. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. I just feel like he'd have to be so cosmically dumb to not figure it out. I think he does know. He's seen the manifold wisdom of God demonstrated in the church. Those who have been called out, those who have, who have rejected his plans, those who have not succumbed to his deceitful schemes, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, they know when Jesus appears in, on earth, they know all of the, the, the demonic spirits, they know. They immediately recognize Jesus and his power. And so the struggle that we have ultimately is against entities that know they will lose, which means what? They, they have nothing to lose. They've already lost. So they're going to try their hardest to get us to do evil. And so our participation in God's eternal purpose is analogous to warfare, analogous to conflict. We're not expected to fight without armor, right? Because, again, the enemy knows they're going to lose. The enemy has, has nothing to lose at this point. They're going to try their hardest to get us to fail. So God has armed us. He's given us some equipment that he expects us to use in this fight. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's the most unusual, and we'll talk about that. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Each of these implements, these pieces of armor, is designed to help us in some way contribute to God's purpose. 
designed to help us win the conflict before us. So let's go through these one at a time. The belt of truth. As we think about, this of course is going back to Roman armor, right? The armor of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, we're not thinking about things in, in our context. That's not the context in which it was written. Uh, one of the things that is interesting before we get into the specifics, the Roman army, historically speaking, a juggernaut. Now, not the most powerful army in history, obviously. I mean, basically anybody with some uh, modern weapons could take them out. But historically, relative to the age in which they lived, a juggernaut, an absolute powerhouse, which is one of the reasons why the Roman Empire conquered so much of the world. Not the entire world, but a lot of the world. So when Paul is, is referring to these pieces of armor, he's referring to them in a context in which this was the most powerful military force at the time. And the comparison that he's making here, we think about these, these implements, part of the reason that they were so effective was the equipment, the belt of truth. What did the belt do in a set of armor? Well, the belt was functionally the thing that held it all together. You know, you had, all, you had your sword strapped to it and your, your greaves and your, your, even your armor, your breastplate was connected to the belt. It was sort of the central piece that everything was fastened to. It was the, the thing that held everything together. And we think about truth in the life of the Christian, Truth is the thing that holds it all together. What is it that, that, that we're fighting against? What is it that we need to avoid? To be not carried away by every wind of doctrine? To not be carried away by craftiness and deceitful schemes? That we can stand against the schemes of the devil? What are the schemes of the devil? Fundamentally, they are untruths. Things that are false. Things that sound good, but ultimately are not true. Truth is what holds everything together. As we think about some of the rest of these as we go through the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, they all rest on truth, right? What is true? How does, how does truth matter? How do we understand truth? Some of this is what we're going to talk about in our Sunday morning class. Uh, on, on next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about truth. How do we know what truth is? What truth matters? How does truth interact with emotion, right? Truth is the foundation. And ultimately, the belt of truth is not just the generic sense of truth. It's the belt of God's truth. What he says is true is what's going to help us combat the schemes of the devil. The breastplate of righteousness. What does a breastplate do? Well, that's, that, that's this big part right here. The breastplate is sort of the main armor piece. Uh, now, again, you can, you can, you'll probably... How do I say this? There's a lot of wounds that you can recover from if they're in the extremities of your body, right? Now, if you could get your arm chopped off as a Roman soldier. You may not, you may not survive because of medicine, but you had a better chance of surviving that than a sword to the gut or a sword to the, the chest area, right? That's where you breathe. That's where your stomach is. Like, this is the main body, the main part of our body where we need to protect, right? And so the breastplate, that was designed to protect this main part. Again, you're using your arms, you're using your legs, and you had armor for those things, but it's this. That's what needed protection. What does righteousness do? It's interesting. The breastplate of righteousness, protecting the core of who we are, how does righteousness protect that? Again, if we're thinking about the struggle, and we have to keep going back to the struggle, we wrestle against the sons of disobedience, is what he said in a previous chapter, right? The cosmic powers over this present darkness. What makes us stand out, what makes us different, or should make us different, is righteousness. That we care about doing right. We care about doing what God wants. We care about following truth. It's one thing to know truth. It's another thing to put it into practice. Righteous is... Uh, righteousness is applied truth. 
to take what we know to be true, what's holding it all together, but then to carry it out, to put it into practice. Understanding, of course, that as I'm carrying out my righteousness, that should be the core of who I am. That I care about doing what's right, above what I want, above selfishness. The shoes of the readiness. Now, I'll go back to this. Let's read this again. And as shoes for your feet having put on, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's interesting. The shoes are not, it's, it's different than the other ones, right? Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, shield of faith. Shoes of readiness. Now, the shoes of readiness, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The purpose of shoes, as we understand, again, we think about the soldier mentality. Shoes kind of protecting your feet from the enemy, but it's really not about protecting your feet from the enemy. It's about protecting your feet from the ground so that you can continue to push forward so that you're not, you're not slipping, you're not falling. You, don't, you know, if you have hurt feet, it's hard to march. It's hard to maintain your stance as a soldier, right? So we're thinking about in the context of the Christian life, shoes, the shoes of readiness. And I think it's interesting the way he phrases this because shoes are about movement. They're about reacting. And the gospel of peace should make us ready to do what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel, Matthew 28. Should make us ready to do what? To encourage one another, to lift one another up. Should make us ready to flee unrighteousness, to flee youthful passions, as Paul says to Timothy in another place. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. The readiness given by the gospel of peace if I understand what the gospel is, I understand that truth. I desire to follow what the gospel says. And that should make me ready to share that with others. Ready to put it into practice when I see opportunity. Ready to do those things. A soldier was not very useful if they were not ready. Ezekiel 18, right? Talking about the watchman. What was the whole deal with the watchman? Why was it so important to have a watchman? Because if the enemy came upon the city and the soldiers weren't ready, they would lose. For us as Christians, understanding the gospel, understanding what Jesus has done for us should help us be ready at all times to carry out the things of righteousness and truth. The shield of faith. We think about the flaming darts of the evil one. What are the flaming darts of the evil one? Well, again, it goes back to the same things we've talked about already, right? Untruths, lies, falsehoods. Now, we could think about that in sort of a more generic sense. The big lies, God is not real. Uh, you don't need to follow the Bible. Um, you know, whatever you want to put in there is sort of the big lies. Might I suggest there's also some smaller lies? You're not that special. You don't matter. Right? Not talking about big cosmic ideas, but personally. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares if you do what's right. Nobody's going to miss you when you're gone. Those are the darts of the evil one. The lies that he tells us that will kill us. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. How about another one? That sin's not that bad. It's not as bad as what so-and-so did the other day. You can do it this one time. It's fine. It's not just big cosmic lies. It's the little lies that he throws at us every day, every hour. It's not that important that you do this thing. It's okay if you just skip it this time. 
that they build up and they build up and they build up. What are we supposed to have? The shield of faith. Faith that says what? Faith that believes in God's promises. Faith that believes God cares about me. I matter. Why? Because God sent his son to die for me. God loves me enough to sacrifice for me. It does matter what I do on a daily basis. There's no small sins. Why? Because faith, our faith teaches that any sin separates us from God. I am needed in the church. Why? Because God promises that we need each other to encourage one another. That he's going to give us help, not just from his own providence, but through his people. And I'm going to be that for somebody else. Believing in the promises of God, believing in what is said in the Bible, helps us combat these flaming darts of the evil one. The helmet of salvation. The point of the helmet, right? The head, where the brain is. A lot of head injuries that, even if they don't kill a person... They change a person, right? We can think about, I don't know, maybe you don't ever know, you've never known anybody like this, but there's a lot of things that can happen in the brain. And again, even if it's not lethal, even if it's not fatal, it changes who a person is, right? There's a lot with memory. Think about how things go on when people forget, either through Alzheimer's or dementia or through, again, through trauma. The mind is what we're going for here, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, he says in Romans, right? To, to be renewed in our, our minds, to think differently. So we think about salvation. We're protecting the head, protecting the things that we think about, protecting what is going on in, in the very deepest part of our mind. Salvation, how does that accomplish that? How does salvation protect us from that? Well, for one thing, if I'm going to put on the helmet of salvation, that's requi it requ is required that I've already understood some important truths. Right? Can't put on the helmet of salvation if I don't believe in God. Can't put on the helmet of salvation if I don't understand at least some basic parts about the Bible. Can't put on the helmet of salvation if I don't understand some truth about the church. Right? So bare minimum, if I have the helmet of salvation, then I've already been changed in my mind a bit. But in an ongoing basis, continual basis, the helmet of salvation helps me remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. Why do I care about what God says? Why do I want to be pleasing to him? Why do I want to be a part of the church? Why, why did I do this in the first place? Oh yeah, salvation. Helps us be motivated. Helps us understand the motivation that we have as we continue to be a soldier for God. Finally, the sword of the spirit. You, what is unique about a sword compared to all the other parts of the armor? The sword is the only, I guess you could bash somebody with a shield, but the sword is the offensive part. Right? The sword is the thing. It serves some defensive purpose, but primarily it's designed to attack. It's designed to go on the offense. The rest of these that we've talked about are designed to protect. And I don't think it's a coincidence then as we think about the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. That's the thing we use to attack. And again, we're thinking about attacking. What is our struggle against? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Our struggle is against falsehood. That we're attacking lies. We're attacking deception. We're attacking false ideas. And how are we going to do that? We're going to attack those ideas with the truth, with the word of God. That we're not just going to sit back, but we're going to go actively teach people the right thing. That's how we contribute offensively to this fight.
Right? We're not just sitting back and, and letting God do all the work. God's equipped us with a sword to go on the offensive, to teach people what they need to know, to combat the lies of the devil wherever we find them, to show people what's true. In addition to the armor, as we wrap up this series on Ephesians, we've been given some marching orders. Okay, equip yourself with these things. And then do what? Well, Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He wanted to use the sword of the spirit for which I am ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If we're carrying forward the soldier metaphor, what is prayer? Prayer is communication in the army right? We have our general. He's given us our orders. Prayer is how I talk to the general, how I communicate back to him. And of course, soldiers are most effective in a unit. Again, the Roman army most famously so. Not individually the greatest soldiers, but through tactics, through coordination, through their, their command structure. That's what made them so formidable, is that they never fought by themselves. As a Christian, I'm praying, talking to the general on a consistent basis, and I'm also being involved with my fellow soldiers. I'm making supplication for all the saints. I'm helping you carry out your mission because your mission is my mission. It's not mine individually, right? I'm not just to go, supposed to go on the attack by myself. We're working as a unit, hopefully. And if we're not, that's when he's going to win, right? The devil, our adversary, he's going to win if I'm trying to do it by myself. But I'm praying and I'm, I'm making supplication and I'm thinking about how I can be encouraging to you. And of course, Paul is saying here, ultimately, be encouraging for me. I need it too. Paul, the apostle, this guy, this titan of faith, he needed their help. Just like all of us need each other. We cannot do it alone. Remember, we are in eternal war, not against other people, but against the cosmic powers it's easy to misunderstand that people are the enemy. People are not the enemy. People are the prisoners of war. People are the casualties. Because ultimately our enemy is, again, the ruler and authority in the heavenly places, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the prince of the power of the air, as he calls him previously, the devil, our adversary. And when he can trick us into fighting other people, he wins. Because he doesn't care about people. He just, he just wants people to be separated from God. Which I think is interesting then that as we think about the, the metaphor of all this war language, the book ends with a discussion of peace. Ephesians 6.21 So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this purpose that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Despite all the warfare language, the benediction, the final benediction, peace be to the brothers in the midst of conflict. The armor of God allows us to experience, as he says in another letter, the peace which passes understanding because of God's grace. Your neighbor is not the enemy. Your neighbor is a prisoner of war. Your job is to fight the real enemy 
to try to help that person escape. And so we have peace, not because nothing is horrible. We have peace ultimately because of a number of things we've already talked about today. Peace because I know that victory is possible. Victory is at hand. Our general, he's stronger than the other general. Our commander, he's stronger than the other commander. He's smarter. He's more powerful. We have more weapons. Like, we're going to win, guys. That's going to happen. Peace because I know that even though I might have conflict in the world, I'm still trying to love the other person, right? I'm not trying to be in, in conflict with them. What does he say in Romans 12? And so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. You want to have peace in your life? Leave it to the wrath of God. Don't try to take vengeance yourself. That's the opposite of peace. Grace to all, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. If there's nothing else that we should learn from the armor of God, it's that Satan wants to corrupt our love. Maybe to make it about ourselves. Maybe to make it about things that are untrue. To twist it into being something that it shouldn't be. And so the invitation, as we conclude our study of Ephesians, God has an eternal purpose. The purpose will be accomplished. He's going to win. He is. The invitation of the book of Ephesians is to be a part of the winning side because only you can prevent it. He's called you. He's calling you now to join the side that will be victorious, to be a part of that eternal purpose. And I hope we'll answer the call.